If you would turn with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, we're going to consider on this Palm Lord's Day, the day in which He came into Jerusalem, but in a very broad stroke of what it really all means, who He really was, what was the nature of His entry, and what does He do then, what does He do now, what does He do what's promised. So we consider in a very broad way this uh, topic here this morning. I want to begin reading at verse 1. I'm going to be reading all the way down through verse 30 and pull out a few of these points as we consider what was going on in this season when Jesus entered in Jerusalem. Now hear the word that he has given to us this day. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. 
But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed it upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Herein ends the reading of the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that has been given to us for this hour as we have prayed to give us this day our daily bread. We now come to the word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. As we open our mouths wide, we pray that you would fill it and that we might taste and see that you are good. As we eat of the flesh of Christ and drink of his blood this day, As the spiritual food is before us and we partake of his life and he imparts his life into us, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we can see his glory. Today, high and risen up, whose train is filling the temple. And we shout glory in the temple. And hear the voice of those angels who constantly attend your throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. As we come this day, mindful that we are coming to the everlasting and ever-living King who is able to save us to the uttermost of all who draw near unto Him by faith, we ask that You would give us a glimpse of Your glory, that we might be changed into Your likeness. We know that our Redeemer liveth. We know He is alive today, governing and ruling over all of the nations and over all of the creation that you yourself have created, taking it toward its appointed end. And so we find rest for our souls this day from all of the troubles from without, knowing that within you are giving us victory. Open our eyes of faith this day that we can see with a greater clarity and so trust in our Lord, the great King of glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered when God made the covenant with Abraham and he just said that he's going to bless his descendants and from you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and As he began to bless Abraham and say, you know, in this land in which you now are, I'm going to give it to you and all your descendants, and they will dwell in it. But have you wondered why he says, but then, after 400 years, they're going to go down into Egypt, and they're going to be slaves in Egypt, and then I will bring them out. And it was like the story was going so well until he said that. Have you ever wondered why he just didn't go ahead and begin to work those things out and over the course of 400 years, right there in the very land, as opposed for this little time that he had to take them, and then they suffered. And they were oppressed. And then there was a great deliverance before they would come back to inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham 430 years before. As we consider that episode in the narrative history of Israel, our fathers, we need to understand that all of the history of Israel before Christ was intended to be revelatory. Those things were written specifically and marked down and encaptured for us 
so that in the things that were written, we might have hope. The things that were transpiring exactly the way that God had decreed it, exactly the way He had revealed it to Abraham, and exactly the way it happened, were according to God's sovereign rule to reveal something through those narratives in that story of a bigger picture that he had promised when man fell into sin and he cursed the enemy and he said it would be the seed of the woman that would bring the triumph over that old serpent. But he's showing us in the unfolding of the revelation and unfolding of his plan all the way through to giving of his son And the things that we celebrate that happened even in his great sufferings this week. We call this the Passion Week. The word passion comes from great sufferings. This is his suffering week. The climax of the work that he came to achieve and to do. And as we consider what is before us, we have what is a narrative before us and a work around it that we consider not an old story, but the reality of which all of those signs were pointing. This morning I want us to consider from this passage with a broad stroke of what's going on this Holy Week, inaugurated with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The time was Passover, and we need to note that very specifically because it has a direct connection with that old exodus, which was revelatory. The Passover was the event that, God, that freed God's oppressed people out of Egypt with a mighty act of display of His glory to bring them into His promised land. And it would be there that God would dwell with them and He would be their God here upon the earth and they would be His people. That was symbolized in the tabernacle. And so the Exodus was as much about the tabernacle as it was the delivery. And Jesus spoke, chose the specific time of Passover to ride into Jerusalem because the Exodus was about to take place. And because of the significance of the Passover event in the lifelong history of Israel, its narrative themes have been repeated throughout its history, but now is the time is at hand. This is no longer merely the narrative. This is the real thing of which all of the others merely pointed to. There were seven notable revelatory themes in the Exodus. I'm going to give them to you briefly. We'll come back around and rehearse them as we consider these particular themes in the Exodus. One theme is a wicked tyrant, the great enemy. In the Exodus theme, it was Pharaoh. Two, there was a chosen leader that God chose to go in and lead His people out. 
from under the oppression of the wicked tyrant. In that case, it was Moses, specifically chosen by God, set apart from birth, protected in his life, given him the calling and the gifting to lead his people back. And he was a mediator. Number three, there was the victory of God and divine judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Number four, there was a rescue by sacrifice. And that was ultimately that culminated in the Passover itself, the death of the firstborn. Number five was a new vocation and a new way of life that we see happening at Mount Sinai when God establishes a covenant with His corporate people now, taking them as Hebrews and forming them into a covenant people, a nation, a one-bodied people. It was a national covenant, but it was a covenant of like a marriage covenant. This was God's marriage covenant with His people, giving them His law, showing them His grace, clarifying their identity as His people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Six, we have the presence of God, which was figured for us in the tabernacle, which later became the permanent, uh, the temple became the permanent fixture of that in the city of Jerusalem. All still just a signpost pointing forward to the reality that we now behold. The tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth intersect, where the holy, eternal God of creation who is outside of time and space and matter, wholly and completely set apart from that which He created. Now He comes into an intersection with His creation in order to dwell among His people created in His image to show forth His glory throughout all of creation. He loves His creation that He created. And the tabernacle was the figure there for the time in which, and the place in which God and His people would come together. He would dwell upon this earth with His people. And His people would worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. And worship of Yahweh was the central part of the life of this newly covenanted people. And seventh theme that we have in this Exodus is a promised and inherited land. It is a new land for these people. It was one that was promised to Abraham. It was identified with God's promises to him. And now in first installment, they are going in to inherit it. A land that is good land, flowing with milk and honey. And now in the exodus from Egypt, the land would finally be inherited. These exodus themes were commonly reiterated throughout all of the Scriptures. But the one thing that we notice in them, there has never been a time when all of them together have been carried out to the completion of which was delineated in the Scriptures. 
that gave a longing for its complete fulfillment. A hope for the things that would still to come. We see sketches of it in the time of the judges when God's people would again be oppressed by, God's, by the enemy and then a judge would be raised up to deliver them. But we see the heart of the people doing right in their own eyes. And it, it was a people that did right in their own eyes before there was a king given to them. And that particular theme of a king comes through the judges showing that they needed such. But not in the way that they would have seen it. Not in the way that they first wanted it, like all of the other nations. No, they needed a king that was bigger, more grand, that could address things in a way that fixed the real problem. We see some of the themes of the Exodus again in David, and even the vivid picture where he goes and confronts Goliath, a giant that was bigger than he, stronger than he, that represented the entire pagan world against which was coming against God's chosen people. And so David went out and represented God's people in this epic battle that he came in the name of the Lord and defeated the oppressed enemy. But yet, when Israel was exiled by God for being disobedient, again, that old problem that always brings back upon them the chastening hand of God. He foretold of this at the end of Deuteronomy, and he, he said, when you turn away... Call upon me, I will answer, I will deliver, I will bring you back. And sure enough, hundreds of years later, the children of Israel, after constant disobedience and breaking of the Sabbath and not allowing the Sabbath to have her jubilee in the land, God takes them out and exiles them for 70 years under the hands of the Babylonians. And a new exodus was needed. Again, they're under slavery. They're out of their promised land. And once again, God, according to His Word, as they called out upon Him, He, he, he brings them out again. But it lacked the fullness of a true, completed exodus. Sure, there was a defeat of a wicked tyrant. But God's people lacked their king. And they were still under oppressive pagan regimes and dominions, even in their own land. And so the fullness of what God had promised had not yet come. They were still looking for a Davidic, messianic, Divinely promised king. Daniel had prophesied that God would send a king. He prophesied it with actually great accuracy. Hundreds of years before. We find in the ninth ch chapter of Daniel 9 that there was these 70 we or 77s. The 
70 weeks, which as we count them up, these were 490 years. And with quite precision, we know when Messiah would come. But there was also ambiguity in that preciseness of when those years would actually begin. Now, it's not as ambiguous to us because we're looking in hindsight and we can see with accurate precision of when those years began and when the culmination of these things would happen in the coming of Christ. But in the day in which they lived, it was going to be promised that these 490 years would begin when they went back to Jerusalem, and yet which going back do we begin marking off our time? That was the question. Because there were several waves that came back in different times. But as we consider these expectations that the Jews had in the time, Israel was looking for a king, their Messiah king, who would deliver them from all of their enemies and restore what God had promised them and what was theirs. It's not surprising that there were many imposters that arose in that general time frame with those ambiguities counted. But these false messiahs arose claiming themselves to be the king, and they often had some amount of credential because they led some kind of military victory and claimed to be Messiah within the general time frame that Daniel had prophesied. Now, I want to consider briefly four of those today to put this coming of our Lord in context. It also helps us to see the the mind of the Jews and their expectation for a king. Hopefully, it will clarify for us what we think of Jesus as being the king and how that works out here upon the earth for the rest of our days. First of all, the first messianic um, imposter that I would like to bring to your attention is one we addressed last Lord's Day. This is Judah the Hammer, Judah Maccabees. I'll just rehearse a few of those things that we talked about last Lord's Day, but put it in the context of these Exodus themes. In 160 B.C., in the 160s, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. He dedicated the temple to the pagan god of Zeus. And there he raised up and sacrificed pigs, smearing God's holy things with pig's blood. And he desecrated severely the temple. He began to oppress the Jews in great and severe ways and Here we have this Exodus theme of this wicked tyrant specifically oppressing God's people, desecrating their identity with their Creator. And like Jesus, there was a crucial part of of Judah's uh, career that lasted about three years, which did end up in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and a cleansing of the temple. Very parallel, but that's where the parallel stops. (laughs) Judah had led a successful insurrection against 
Epiphanes. His brothers would then consolidate that victory and establish an independent Jewish state that lasted for 80 years. Judah and his family established themselves in the messianic roles of chief high priest and the king of the Jews. Even though they didn't come from either of the proper family lines that was established for the priest and for the king. The ancient Exodus storyline was once again replayed. A wicked tyrant oppressing God's people, Epiphanes. A noble heroic leader risking all and fighting and winning the key battle and cleansing the temple. But the problem with Judah the hammer is that gradually that dawned upon the people is it was apparent that the prophecies were still unfulfilled and his dynasty didn't last for long at all. A second false messiah came about about a hundred years after Jesus. I think it's Helpful to also think about this in light of what the Jews were expecting because their expectation hadn't changed. If we fast forward to the year A.D. 132, after the time of Jesus and even after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed in A.D. 70, the story starts off much the same. Another wicked king inflicted great sufferings on the Jews, another new hero emerges with some initial victories, and then another three-year campaign. The aim was the same, defeat the pagan enemy, reestablish the temple, liberate the Jews, and establish a new king and a new realm. That was the plan. This time, the wicked king was the Roman emperor Hadrian. And like Epiphanes before him, he transformed Jerusalem into a pagan city, even giving it a new name. He attacked all of the major symbols of the Jewish life. And since the temple had been previously destroyed in A.D. 70, the Jews had one day hope of rebuilding it, and at one time even Rome had hinted of the idea of allowing them to do so. But now that seemed all jeopardized when Hadrian came in and paganized the city and desecrated all of those Jewish symbols once again. And when this paganization of Jerusalem, with the imposition of even higher taxes upon the Jews destroying all their symbols, there was a boiling point that was, was being reached, and a new leader emerged, Simon the Star, he was referred to. Simon bar Kusiba. Bar is the Jewish or the Hebrew word for son. So Simon, son of Kusiba, was hailed as son of a star. That was echoing an old prophecy given in Numbers 24 that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And now as Simon the star comes on the scene with this new boiling point within the desecration of the Roman Empire, again these Exodus themes are being carried out in another narrative story in the history of Israel. Simon established a new regime and a new Jewish order 
under his leadership for three years. Each of those years, he minted a Jewish coin. On one of those coins, he, he pressed into it a picture of the temple that he was going to lead in rebuilding quite in spite of the current position of Rome. It was considered a dawning of a new day, once again, with hope of some things turning out. But this movement didn't last long at all. The Romans moved in quickly. They squashed Simon's movement so badly that many of the Jews of that day felt that Simon had been a false messiah. And from that time forward... Many Jews no longer expected a Messiah at all. But they learned to live contented lives out of their obedience to God's law in private, more so. And even many Jewish teachers and rabbis have been advocating this position ever since. Those were two kings on either side. Let me now bring us more into the context and show us two more kings that also were two kings of Jews that both failed. The other king I will mention is Herod the Great. If there was ever a king of the Jews around the time of Jesus, it was Herod. Notice I said, if there ever was a king. Herod did not come from the line of Judah or the line of David. In fact, he wasn't even fully Jewish, therefore not even qualified to be king of Jews. But Herod had made a name for himself, and particularly among the Romans, when Rome's old enemy, the Parthians, invaded the Roman lands, including Jerusalem itself. And Herod the Great was an effective military leader, He was already recognized by the Romans as the king of the Jews. And so he rose up and defeated Rome's old enemy, the Parthians, and recaptured Jerusalem in behalf of the Romans. And as the old narrative went, there was a wicked foreign power that came in and suppressed the Jews. A hero savior rose up to deliver them, and in the aftermath of success, he began to enlarge and embellish the temple. The temple is always a theme in the Messianic king. So much was the focus of Herod embellishing the current temple, the second temple that was rebuilt hundreds of years earlier, but now he took new energy and focus upon it. He began to enlarge it and embellish it, and so much was he trying to bring it back to Solomon's former glory that it was called Herod's Temple. And the temple that we know of of Jesus' day was this Herod's Temple, the temple of which Herod had enlarged and embellished and which would have been that which he and his disciples would have seen. And Herod provides a backdrop to the life of Jesus in what many considered at the time what a Jewish king looked like. It meant military victory. It meant a concern for the temple. It meant establishing the Jewish people in peace. 
But again, we see great failure. We'll begin with a successful brilliance for Herod, shriveled into a dim despair, both for him with little hope for the Jews and their view of a messianic king. One other king I'll bring to your attention, and then we're going to turn to the king. The other king I'd like to bring to your attention this morning is Simon Bar-Giora. He was also another failure, another messianic savior of Jews that failed. Simon Bar-Giora, or Giora, appeared in the time of the great revolt against Rome in the years 66 through 70. It ended in a complete catastrophe and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple under the Roman imperial government. As Simon had gained popular support and increased in power among the Jews, he announced freedom for the Jewish slaves. His agenda would have been as usual, According to the ancient narrative, once again, the themes of Exodus, defeat the enemy, defeat the tyrant, cleanse the temple, establish his own kingdom. But Simon did none of those things. The Romans destroyed the temple, and Simon surrendered in a miserable fashion where they chained him and led him off to Rome. And as the Romans had their victory parade, Simon, bound in chains, was dragged at the very end of it. And when they came to the end of that victory parade, it was the place where Simon's death sentence was carried out in utter humility and failure. Four kings claimed to be messianic king of the Jews, four failures, and four dynasties and kingdoms that did not last. And that is the backdrop. That's their expectation. And today the Jews have very little hope. But here we see, coming into Jerusalem on that great triumphant day, announcing he was the messianic king, in the climactic way in which he was doing so, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the first day of the week, announcing himself publicly and climatically that he was the true messianic king. He had all of the credentials of which none other messianic king had. He had all of the fulfillment of the prophecies which none of the others did. And he had the open, um, credentialed, Authority of God Himself resting upon Him and even the voice of God affirming Him in the hearing of His people. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The people acknowledged this as they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of Yahweh. And they threw palm branches out as He came into Jerusalem crying out, Son of David, Son of David. 
from the tribe of Judah, from the seed of David, and he, unlike the others, fulfilled that prophecy. Even the children were crying out in the temple and praising him, and he received it all. And even under the stern warning of the Pharisees who said, silence them. He said, if I did, even the stones would cry out the same. So what's different about Jesus' announcement, his regime, his world order, his kingdom, from all of the other professed Jewish messiahs? In a word, everything. True or not, as the story goes, there is legend and perhaps maybe even a bit more of a legend. As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem down the path and the street in which he was coming, riding on a donkey with the Jews gathered by tens of thousands there for the celebration of the Passover feast. They swelled Jerusalem larger than the city could handle and they began shouting out and passing off palm branches and throwing their clothes for him to ride on. On the opposite end of the city, so the story goes, and I don't know if there's truth to this or not, Pilate himself was riding in a victorious procession and a triumphal entry on the other end of Jerusalem on a kingly horse with Roman citizens and soldiers shouting out on the other end. We do see later these two worlds, these two representative heads, and these two worldviews of these two cosmic battles coming face to face when Pilate says, so you do say that you are a king? And Jesus said, you have said it. Pilate then says, do you know that I can kill you? Jesus said, you wouldn't have that authority if it had not been given to you of my father. So this is what we see playing out this week, this clash, this clash between two worlds, the cosmic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The entire narrative of what was taking place in the history of the world is the reality of the exodus of which the old story just pointed. Israel's slavery and deliverance out of Egypt was but a historic symbol. Oh, historic, yes, it really happened, but it was a symbol pointing forward to something where the reality would be found. That's what we think of and celebrate this week, the reality. Jesus, the Messianic King, went right to the root of the problem itself, death. In order to launch a new creation for the Jews, that new creation for which the Jews longed, that which the Scriptures had prophesied, that which Isaiah makes vivid, death itself would have to be overcome. Death was the curse of God against the rebellion of man. And if death were going to be defeated then idolatry and rebellion and all disobedience and sin would be defeated along with it. That was the enemy that needed to be defeated. If all of the enemies and the root cause of them 
that went along with it, if all of these were destroyed, then eventually all wars would cease, all things would be made new, there would never again, ultimately speaking, be an uprising against God's people. The other messiahs that claim kingship were going to come and they were going to go. Nations are going to come and nations are going to go. Kingdoms are going to come and kingdoms are going to go. But the kingdom of our everlasting Lord will last forever. And it will defeat the very root cause of everything that causes the problems that we inherit. None of the other messiahs could offer or promise such a thing. None could deliver the victory that was needed. None of the others could claim the Davidic successive line. None of the others could actually fulfill the Exodus themes in an efficacious way to where there would be completion in all of those things and ultimately fulfilled. They could only replay the old narratives of the symbol they couldn't live out the reality see the mystery that had been hidden for the ages in the past and now has been made known in christ is that god himself yahweh himself would descend and he would be israel's messiah God himself would come into his temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. And God himself would be the suffering servant who must suffer and die for his people. That the Jews were not ready to receive. That the Jews still cannot understand. This is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, and he suffered, and he died, and he rose again. And it's the concept of this dying Messiah, which was so incomprehensible to the Jews that they could not put all of the Scriptures together. It did not fit their model even though many prophecies suggest it. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem during the Passover season, He would not only promise, but He would affect the new exodus, the, the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth would have their bud in the resurrection of Christ. He is the first fruits of it, and the rest of the harvest will come. And he is the guarantee of that. Consider the new exodus that would establish this new creation. Let's go back once again through those seven themes of the exodus and see how Christ has fulfilled these things. First of all, there was a tyrant. And the tyrant are not the Jewish leaders, though they would be the channels through which the dark powers would work. The tyrant was not even the Roman imperial government even though Rome would nail him to the cross. But the tyrant was the devil himself, the serpent of old, behind all of the foreign pagan oppressors, behind every one of them. 
We see him here in verse 3 in our passage before us. As we see Satan entering into Judas, and things are going to heat up and culminate. We see Satan behind all of the work. He is the one that needs to be defeated. We see a leader, the second theme of the Exodus, a leader that was chosen by God and had been chosen from before the foundation of the world, and in time came, born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill those things of which had been prophesied and which were necessary to free his oppressed people out of sin and from death itself and from the great enemy. He would be like a Moses, but he would be the fulfillment a mediator between God and man, a man who meets with God himself face to face. He would be judge and judge over his people. He would be the leader who would lead God's people out of Egypt. The third theme is we see a victory of God as he then judges his divine judgment over sin and over death as he lays his judgment upon his own son. And while the sin was ours, the judgment for our sins became Christ's. And this which we call a vicarious atonement, a complete substitutionary atonement. All of God's plagues in Egypt were corresponding to each one of the pagan gods of the Egyptians showing an utter defeat over all of the pagan deities and ultimately over death itself when he then prescribes the death of the firstborn would be that which would deliver his people out of the oppression. And in the death of the firstborn, God defeats death itself and the victory which he gives new life to his people, a new identity, a new land, a new hope, a new calling. And number four, we have a rescue by sacrifice. The great Savior, Redeemer, would rise up and through a sacrifice of Himself and and taking great risk, He would defeat the great enemy. And here is why Jesus chose Passover to enter into Jerusalem. Why He chose this particular time, as verse 1 says. Because He would be the firstborn that would die. He would be the sacrifice for God's people that would free His enslaved people. Not just a slavery of the Romans, but enslaved to sin itself. And that's why in John chapter 8, He's telling the Pharisees, He says, you know, if, if, the, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they said, we've never been incarcerated by anyone. Ah, but I'm speaking about sin. Sin has indeed imprisoned you. And if you just know the Son, He will set you free indeed. And they despised Him all the more for it. The fifth theme of the Exodus, we have a new vocation and a new calling for God's people that was given and inaugurated. And then the new creation, the kingdom character and calling is upon God's people now. 
In verse 27, this is the new way of life when this kingdom which is prepared, that the Father prepared for the Son, the Son prepares for the people, and this kingdom is the efficacious new exodus. No longer is it bound to a certain boundary of the Middle East. But that other theme of the inheritance, not merely of a promised land over there, but the other theme would be that which is encompassing the entirety of the earth. The new vocation for this would be that we would then take the commission of Christ because all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth and He sends us out with that authority to go make disciples of the nations with the hope it will be victorious because He has been victorious. Because the nations will be defeated in the gospel itself and righteousness, His righteous scepter will reign upon all of the earth until as the waters cover the sea, so the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the entirety of the earth. We have a new vocation, a new calling in this new creation. The character of it was displayed in the Sermon on the Mount with those Beatitudes. As we pray for those who curse us and as we we love those who are our enemies, the love that... 1 Corinthians 13 begins to display its character of a true kind of biblical love that the world does not know. With the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5 and so contrast with the ways of this world. And we have love, joy, peace, and all of those other benefits that the Spirit brings the character of His kingdom upon His people and will eventually, as the seed grows flourish throughout the earth. And of course, we have the temple theme. The seventh characteristic. This intersection where heaven and earth comes together and we are marked out when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, speaking about the temple of His body. Here is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ Himself being the temple. United together with His church, that is the temple. That is the intersection where heaven and earth come together. That is the place. This is the place this morning. This is the place this morning where heaven and earth come together, where Jesus is inseparably united together with His bride and the two become one flesh. And in His flesh, in His resurrected flesh, All of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, the Scripture tells us. And we now enjoy and end with the life of the Godhead through Christ. It is He that is the temple of the Holy Spirit, His resurrected body with ours. This is the temple that the Exodus tabernacle always pointed toward. This is the temple that the temple of Solomon always pointed toward. This is why Herod's temple would always be inferior and why Christ himself in A.D. 70, using the Romans, came to destroy the temple in Jerusalem because it was no longer needed. And so Jesus sits down and eats the Passover meal. It was a different kind of sorts. All of the other Passover meals up until this one meal always was looking backward 
remembering something of the past, this particular Passover meal, very deliberately in the words of the institution itself, was not looking backward, but looking forward. Looking forward. It had a new perspective, as verse 16 through 20 then points out, as we will come to the institution when Jesus is even taking the cup and says, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And guess when that time is? When he rose upon the grave, as he ascended on highs, he sends his spirit out. He now drinks the cup new with us in his kingdom, of which is established for the last 2,000 years. And he will drink with us today. He will drink with us today, pointing forward to his disciples. He would lead his people in the Exodus, not a rehearsal of the old story, the fulfillment of the very narratives of which it pointed, loosening his people from the bondage of sin. He leads them out from under all of the dark powers that had oppressed them and enslaved them. And now we are dead and buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. We are a new creature in Christ and instruments of righteousness and sin no longer has dominion over us. That's what the Exodus means. We shall see as the events unfold and proceed this week. Jesus has to overcome death itself. And that's the why Jesus, the Messiah, has to truly die. It is no coincidence that he chose the season of spring in this northern hemisphere in the time in which he lived. Where this whole creation has been under a, a dark, wintry dormant of death, which springs to newness of life in this seasonal time which God had already planned when Passover would come. It was here at Passover that the Jews would then bring the very first of their harvest of the barley and bring it as a wave offering. And as they dedicated the first fruits to God, they knew by promise that the rest of the harvest would come. That is the lesson that we need to obtain when we know that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. The rest of the harvest will come. As we consider our time this week, this is a new creation. He gives us a new calling and a vocation in life, a new identity. He leads His people to a land flowing with milk and honey, And one day, His whole glory will cover the entirety of the earth. The promise for us is a promise for us to see realized here. When heaven comes down to earth, and the glory of God is here in fullness. He leads us to a new form of temple, even His own body, where the fullness of the Godhead dwells. The nature of this new exodus is the nature of the new kingdom. And he tells us that in verse 29 and 30 as he points to this servitude and even sufferings through which these things will happen. The new exodus that Jesus effected would bring in God's glorious kingdom on the earth where we have fellowship with God here through Christ who is the heaven and earth intersection.
We see the new creation dawning and beginning. We have the promise of these things even now. And we're seeing them unfold with greater measure. The events of this Holy Week are important for us to consider that the world since the time of the death and the resurrection of Christ has never been the same. God's promised everlasting kingdom has been inaugurated. It came in the presence of the king. Yes, there are still enemies to drive out. Yes, there's a future completion to it. But it's all going somewhere. And there's a vocation for you and I to live out, to fulfill our calling. We must follow Jesus down that path. He has paid for us. It is a pathway of sufferings for a time but it will meet in full victory over those things. We must look through the sufferings for the joy that is set before us on the other side. We must deny ourselves and like Him lay our lives down and live for the glory of God, doing His will and not merely our own. And one day this old body, like a grain of wheat, will fall into the ground and die. But unless it does that, it will not spring again to new life, to flourish into the harvest that glorifies God. Live today in the light of that eternal glory, fulfilling your holy vocation. And the greatest application for us all this morning is trust in your messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got everything in control. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are for the power of God in Christ Jesus. And working in His Spirit to raise Him from the dead is the same power that works now in us. And we pray You would open our eyes of faith that we could see with greater clarity His glory and be changed from likeness, from glory to glory, into His own likeness. Lord, in a world around us that is falling apart and where the evil oppressors abound. We know that Christ has won the victory, but we have to understand it His way. He has defeated the greatest enemy of all. He has overcome all of our enemies, and in time it will all be worked out. May we give ourselves to trust the Gospel, to trust our Savior, and to give of our entirety of our lives in this life while this body remains to the great work of the kingdom and the calling that you've given to each one of us. May we all know the joy of the kingdom of light. May we all redound to the glory of our God in his holy temple. We thank you that our King Jesus has reestablished all these things in truth and in the reality to which all those old themes pointed. It is him today we give praise to the honor of his heavenly Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.